Welcome to the official podcast for Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization. I'm Beth, a.k.a. Triumvir Clio. Hello again. Welcome back. I'm glad you're here. My kid has just interrupted me, her mouth full of toast, to announce that there are only 23 days until Christmas. I know that this will drop after Christmas, but it made me giggle, so I'm telling you. Anyway, today we continue working our way through the Aeneid. We are now halfway through, and you might notice something interesting about the structure of this epic. The first half is all about Aeneas's journey and parallels the Odyssey, but now that Aeneas has reached Italy, he doesn't have anywhere to go, much like a bunch of Greek soldiers camped outside of Troy. Yes, this means the second half is a Roman version of the Iliad. I'll do my best to focus on Virgil, but you know I'm going to make comparisons to Homer. I won't be able to help myself. As a reminder, I'm working from the Fitzgerald translation. When we last left our hero, he had visited the underworld and left through the gate of false dreams and then sailed on with his crew, and that is where we find him. But book seven starts with a death. Kaeda. Remember her? No? Yeah, this is really the first mention of her. She's Aeneas's old nurse, the last link to his childhood, and Troy. She dies. Aeneas gives her a funeral. The place where she was buried now bears her name. That's all. That's the entire purpose of her being there. They sail some more. They pass Circe's Island. We get a somewhat lengthy description of the island to explain why Aeneas and his crew don't stop. And then they get to this new land, a land flowing with, well, maybe not milk and honey. Troy is much closer to that land. But there is a river, the Tiber to be exact, and that is where they land. Virgil then takes a bit of a diversion. He calls on Erato, the muse of love, to help tell the history of Latium and King Latinus. Local lore claims that his father is Faunus and his mother is Mar- Merica, a nymph. He has one child, a daughter named Lavinia. And in proper fairy tale fashion, all the eligible men are vying for her hand. One in particular, a man named Turnus, who just so happens to be heir to the neighboring kingdom, has the favor of, well, not Lavinia, but her mother. Lat- Latinus isn't sold, and here's why. There's this laurel tree that grows inside the palace. That's why Latinus's people are called Laurentines. <laughs> Get it? Laurel, Laurentine. Anyway, one day, a huge swarm of bees settled on that laurel tree. The local soothsayer says, this means that company is coming, like dropping a fork or whatever. But there's more. There was also that time Lavinia was helping light the fires at the altars and she was engulfed in flames but spared any harm, which was clearly another sign of things to come, both good and bad. Latinus goes to his father, Faunus, for advice. Faunus says that Lavinia shouldn't marry any of the local boys, so Turnus, out of luck. I bet you can see where this is going, can't you? Back to Aeneas and his merry band of Trojan refugees. They land and make lunch, starting with some bread that they use as plates, which they then eat, thus fulfilling the prophecy that they will be so hungry they eat their tables. They pray to Jove upon this realization and then start building a camp and drinking and feasting like you do. 
in the morning, Aeneas selects a hundred legates to serve as emissaries to the nearby town, which we've already seen is Latinus' city. And I just have to say that a hundred legates seems like a lot, but <laughs> this is as much about Virgil's Rome as it is about Aeneas, so yeah. Anyway, Latinus hears about this band of men marching to his town, and he goes out to greet them. Clearly, these are the visitors the bees foretold. They say, we're from Troy, and he says, no way, my great-great-great-something-or-other moved from Italy and founded Troy. Only it takes him a lot longer to get to that point. One of the Trojans, Ilioneus, gives a lengthy speech about how awesome Aeneas is, and how cool the Trojans are, and how they come in peace, and pretty please can we stay? Latinus is thrilled. This Aeneas is clearly the man Lavinia is supposed to marry. Don't ask how Lavinia feels about it. No one else bothers to. Latinus gives some horses to the Trojans to take back to Aeneas, and everyone lives happily ever after. Of course not. Juno still has to put her two cents in. She is the goddess of marriage, after all. And she does not approve of this marriage. And so she decides to go to the ends of the earth, or at least the darkest part of the underworld, to stop Aeneas. She goes to those most ancient of goddesses, the Furies. Electo, in particular, the most hated and feared of all the Furies. Okay, there are only three Furies, but whatever. The key things you need to know about Electo is that everyone, including her own father, Pluto, fears her. And she has snakes for hair. And she's more than happy to help Juno in sowing discord. Electo goes to Amata, Lavinia's mother. Amata is already a little miffed that Lavinia and Turnus are no longer to marry. Electo, again, is more than happy to help turn that little miffed into downright furious. She plucks one of her hairs, which you'll recall are snakes, and drops it on Amata. The snake winds its way around her, filling her with its poison. Amata pleads with Latinus to go back to the original wedding plans, but Latinus has no intention of changing his mind. So Amata does the only logical thing. She runs out into the city and feigns a Bacchic frenzy to get the rest of the women in the city on her side, and they all run out into the woods to hide, taking Lavinia with them. But Electo's not done yet. Next, she flies off to Turnus, where she takes on the guise of Calibi, an old priestess in Juno's temple. That Trojan is gonna take your woman, she shouts at Turnus. He merely rolls his eyes. He knows all about the Trojan fleet, but he's not scared. Juno won't forget about him. He has faith. Little does he know that Electo was sent to him by the very goddess in whom he's put his trust. But Electo doesn't take this dismissal kindly, so she drops her disguise and throws a torch at him. <laughs> that does the trick. Turnus becomes completely war-crazed and calls for his men to go march against these interlopers. But Electo still isn't finished. There's still one more group that she has to rile up the Trojans. And that, of course, is where she flies next. But she takes a somewhat roundabout tactic this time. She instills her fury into Ascanius's dogs. They go tearing off after a stag. Ascanius is thrilled to join them in the hunt. He shoots the stag. Big mistake. 
this is the start of the trouble between the Trojans and the Latins. You'd think it would have been the whole Lavinia thing, but no, it's killing the stag. This this gorgeous stag. This gorgeous stag that's pet to a young woman named Sylvia. Sylvia had a little stag. Its antlers were huge oh, and everywhere that Sylvia went, the stag was sure to go, and Ascanius kills it. Sylvia cries out for justice for her stag, and Electo lends a hand by using Sylvia's dad's horn to send out a war call. All hell breaks loose, which I suppose had already kind of happened when Electo was released from the underworld. But anyway, battle breaks out, and the first to die is Sylvia's brother. Electo flies back to Juno, who pats her on the head for a job well done, and Electo flies back to her home in the underworld, which is easily accessible through this spot in central Italy. Who knew? Now, there's this custom in the area to open these particular gates whenever there's a war. But Latinus isn't so sure he should open the gates because he doesn't really want to declare war on Aeneas. He really thinks stranger, Mary Lavinia, that's what the prophecy says. Ah, yeah, but um, behind every reluctant king, there's a vengeful goddess, so Juno opens the doors herself, and everyone in the area knows to arm themselves for war. And who are all these people? Do you really want to know? You don't? Virgil doesn't care. He's going to tell you anyway. Do you remember the catalog of ships towards the beginning of the Iliad? Yeah, That's the point we've reached in this second half of the Aeneid, the catalog of combatants, if you will. In my translation, it goes on for about six pages. If you really do want to know, you can read it yourself. And it is also at this point that book seven ends. I wasn't kidding when I said the second half is the Iliad. We get a catalog that goes on for too many pages. We get battle. We get meddling gods. Although meddling gods is a hallmark of the Iliad, so that's not really a new feature. In the Iliad, I kept going on and on about honor and glory, but the theme that is a constant feature in the Aeneid is fate versus free will. Where do I even begin on that topic today? Juno? Electo? Lavinia? One could argue that Lavinia is the embodiment of this theme, and not for once because of any meddling the gods are up to. We hear a lot about Lavinia, but we don't hear from her. She has no free will when it comes to who she'll marry. That's up to her parents and the gods, but even before Juno butts in, it's up to her parents. Now, I do love that we get to see Electo in this book. In most of what we've covered so far, the Furies have been a collective, but there is a tradition of three Furies with names and specific concentrations, if you will, of what they avenge um, or what they make people go crazy because they did. And and anyway, this is the first time that we've seen a fury act on her own. And boy, does she seem to enjoy her work. When we first meet her, she seems to be bound in the underworld and 
and released by Juno. But at the end of her portion, it is clear that no, that's just where she lives, which means she's free to come and sow trouble whenever she wants to, or, you know, when the price is right. And that makes me think of another parallel to the earlier Trojan War myth. This war between the Trojans and the Latins begins with Alecto stirring up trouble. And that earlier Trojan War, the famous one, begins with Eris, the goddess of discord, doing the same with that whole golden apple that's to the fairest and the goddess beauty pageant. And this, of course, brings me back to the big theme, fate versus free will. How much of this is fated and how much of this is free will if it all starts with a one of the immortal beings, Electo or Eris, stirring up trouble. So what are your thoughts about Book 7? About what it has to say about fate or free will or being a woman or being a badass goddess? Pop over to the blog and share. It's at triumvirclio.school.blog. The URL and maybe a link are in the show notes. You can also find me on Patreon if you feel so inclined, and that URL is in the show notes too. In the next episode, we'll cover Book 2, Chapter 7 of the Bibliotheca. We're not done with Heracles yet. Talk to you then. You can join the discussion of this and everything covered in this podcast by following the link in my show notes. And if you're enjoying what you've heard so far, please consider supporting the show with a monthly donation of your choosing, just like public radio. And please also consider giving a five-star review on your podcatcher of choice so that more people can discover the fun that is Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization.